Hello, and welcome to the Beyond Boundaries podcast, a podcast where we interview faculty, students, staff, and alums of the Beyond Boundaries series of courses and the Beyond Boundaries program at Washington University in St. Louis. In this podcast, we aim to reach across the digital divide and highlight engaging stories told by Beyond Boundaries faculty and students at WashU and their ideas for future work and play. We hope to give you a window into what Beyond Boundaries is, featuring the next generation of interdisciplinary thinkers and collaborators whose aim is to leverage curiosity across disciplines in an effort to solve some of the most complex and challenging problems we face in the world today. My name is Rob Morgan, and I am the director of the Beyond Boundaries program at WashU and a teaching professor in the area of design and the performing arts department. Enjoy the show. My guests today on the Beyond Boundaries program are two professors who co-teach a very interesting class this spring, spring of 2023, called Morality and Markets. Um, we have with us um, uh, both of them, uh, Professor Abram von Engen, he is the chair and professor of English, and we have um, Professor um, Peter Baumgarten, who is the Koch Family Professor of Practice and Family Enterprise and the director of the Koch Family Center for Family Enterprise and the academic director for the Center for Experiential Learning in the Olin Business School. So we have arts That's a lot sciences. of titles, Peter. The longer, the longer the title, the more the insecurity is what they say. So. <laughs> I heard there's also pride in multiple offices, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> oh, <right>. yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just so delighted that you're both um, here to talk about your class. I hope to get students interested in it. We already have, I already have second year students interested in it, so interested that they, one of them has signed on to be one of your TAs next semester. So, um, so t uh, I'm just so glad that you're here. So welcome to the Beyond Boundaries podcast. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Um, so if you wouldn't mind maybe beginning with um, um, Abram, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about your role, how long you've been at WashU and your role as chair and professor in English. Um, yeah. and, then, and then maybe bridge that to um, how you met Peter. And um, Peter, if you wouldn't mind um, giving a little bit of background, you've been here, I believe, since 2018, if I'm not mistaken. So, yep. um, so yeah, um, Professor Van Engen, if you wouldn't mind um, yeah. starting. So I, I came here in 2012, so I've been here 10 years. And um, my role in the English department these days is mostly a full-time administrator. <laughs> I try to be a faculty member still, but uh, it's sometimes difficult. But yes, I, I uh, teach and write, and I, I research uh, early American literature and culture and religion and literature more generally speaking. So I have works on the Puritans and what people make of the Pilgrims and Puritans in national histories and national stories. Um, and then I also have work on, say, the novelist Marilyn Robinson and so forth. Um, and, uh, yeah, now these days I'm trying to chair the English department and make sure that I don't mess up at that. That's my main, <laughs> that's my, my main goal these days. That's fair. What other classes do you teach in uh, related to the English department? So I have taught several classes in early American literature. Um, one of my favorite courses is another, uh, first year course called Re religion and literature, where we actually read 20th century novels. Um, most of them sort of Pulitzer prize winners or Nobel winners. Um, but all of them, <clears throat> all of them dealing with religion in some kind of way. And so we think through, you know, how religion shapes cultural and human experience through a whole different set of novels. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, well, thank you for being here today. Um, and uh, Professor von uh, Baumgarten, would you mind? And Baumgarten's ma. That is like, I like that. Are you making me Dutch here, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about your role in the Olin Business School. This is what makes these Beyond Boundaries classes unique, is they are taught by two or more faculty across two or more divisions at WashU. You all represent arts and sciences in Olin Business School. So, um, Professor Baumgarten, if you wouldn't mind talking about your, your role at, uh, at Olin. 
Yeah, happy to. So um, I've been at WashU now for four and a half years, but this is my third tour of duty in St. Louis and at WashU. I did my PhD here initially in strategy and organizational behavior. I then um, left for a number of years, taught at a small school in um, Holland, Michigan called Hope College. Came back for a sabbatical year because I just liked being in St. Louis and liked being at WashU. Left because they paid me to go away for a year and then came back a year later. So have been here since then. Uh, and then over the last couple of years, I've kind of taken a couple different administrative roles, one of which is the director of the Koch Center for Family Enterprise. A lot of people are trying to figure out what that means. Let me give you just a quick description of it. Please. It basically deals with anything from family business, like your mom and pop shops, all the way up to Walmart is family controlled, for example. Um, the family philanthropy side is, for example, like the Kemper Art Museum on campus comes out of the Kemper family. Or if you go over to the Missouri Botanical Gardens, there's a beautiful Taylor entrance now that's kind of linked towards the Taylor family. Uh, and then the final piece is family office, which is oftentimes more of an investment arm. So everything from business to philanthropy to investment in the context of both small families all the way up to large established um, multi-generational families. Oh, fine. And how, how, um, how are students engaged in this particular area? Yeah, so there's some student engagement um, at the level of kind of thinking about what it means to own something effectively. So I'll give you just one simple example. Uh, but end of this next month, we're going to go down to the new MLS stadium downtown. And we're going to spend some time with folks on the family side, as well as the leadership side of that initiative. That is the Taylor family involvement there, Andy Taylor, and then his niece, I guess, who's the CEO, um, the only female owned MLS team in the country. And we're gonna talk about why they invested in that particular initiative, um, why they did downtown St. Louis, for example, versus going out to West County, how they think about doing some economic development efforts and also getting people more interested in soccer more broadly. So to me, that's a, that's a question of ownership. What's the objective in owning this particular entity? Are they willing to sacrifice returns, for example, to drive different types of outcomes that they care about? Um, so that would be a simple example of how we get students involved in some of this work. Yeah, and what a great opportunity. I often talk in previous podcasts about getting students beyond the WashU bubble and really recognizing that they're a part of the St. Louis community, whether they realize it or not. And um, and to get them engaged with St. Louis businesses as this is, it's just a great opportunity for our students. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for, for kind of giving us an overview of what you do and how long you've been at WashU. I wanna um, make sure we talk about this new, this not new class, actually. It was, it's been around for a while. It was on a bit of a hiatus, um, but I'm delighted that it's back and being offered in the spring. Um, it's called Morality and Markets, um, and a number of students have really enjoyed this class over the years. If you don't mind, I wanna read the, um, the course description for it uh, and maybe get a, started basically on a discussion about how you all happen to perhaps serendipitously, serendipitously talk about it and get involved and offer it up as a course and now it's been adopted as, as an official Beyond Boundaries course. Um, so um, this is the course description. What does it look like to live a moral life in today's market system? We all know too well what it does not look like. The news is filled with moral failures of leaders and executives at top firms. We like to believe that we would behave differently but what kind of pressures uh, inform our moral choices? What pulls us, what pushes us, and what persuades us to act one way rather than another? These are questions that a course combining business and literature can open in unique ways, for the world of fiction helps open the ethical dilemmas of the market we inhabit every day. In the following course, we use great books, classics of film, modern television, and the tools of modern psychology and business strategy 
to think critically about what is entailed in living a moral life in the midst of the modern market. Um, what a great class. So many of these courses I wish I could take myself, <laughs> but I don't think I'd pass for a 20-year-old anymore. But, <laughs> um, but uh, if you wouldn't mind, talk about how this started. What's the origin story of this class? Uh, yeah, so Peter and I, we met uh, when Peter returned to WashU is when we first met. We both went to the same undergrad. In fact, there's, I think, six, seven professors at WashU who went to Calvin like us. Uh, and so we got talking uh, and met that way. And as we were talking, I mean, Peter was telling me about these, at that time, uh, newer sort of theories of narrative economics and the ways that stories um, sort of encapsulate, orient, and drive people's market behaviors. And I was like, well, I kind of do stories for a living. Like we talk about them, we analyze them, we read them. Uh, so maybe there's something here that we could do together to think more broadly about how people actually behave in a marketplace and what actually counts as ethical behavior. Um, I didn't know too much about the business world. That's, of course, where Peter comes in. But thinking through the, the sort of ethical case dilemmas that I had seen in my life, they were sort of short. They sort of short circuited the idea of um, fully knowing somebody's character and how that might affect the way you would behave. And so they, they, the ones that I had seen, again, just, just the ones that I had seen, sort of assumed that everybody was the same or that everybody's relationship to one another was more or less the same, that a human being was interchangeable with another human being. And then you have this dilemma. So what do you do? But what if the human being that uh, you're inter interacting with is a family member? What if it's a friend? What if it's uh, somebody you once hurt uh, and now you're trying to, to right that wrong and so on? All these sort of scenarios start to creep in and they affect the way that we judge situations and how we ought to behave. So that's where novels and short stories and other kinds of things could really get us into what does it mean to act uh, in ethical ways when you fully know somebody's character, story, uh, and all the ways that you're related to them. I find yeah, that's it. A, that's, so a, that's a gr great description. And maybe just a few things to kind of add on top of that. So um, business schools do stories a lot, but we do it in the context of these very narrow genre type of the case. So, for example, many of the students or some of the students, at least, will become business students. They're going to go into Olin. They're going to take a bunch of different case studies. They're typically 10 pages long. There's a single protagonist. Um, it gives you some background on the challenge itself. Maybe it's a strategy case or an operations case or a leadership case. Um, but they're pretty flat in a lot of ways. And so um, we don't get to know the depth of the characters in the same way. We don't actually get to feel the pressure that people feel in the midst of a certain environment. And my own view is it actually makes it really easy to assess it from the outside and assume that this would be really easy to navigate. So for example, uh, we could look at the Sackler family and Purdue Pharmaceuticals and look at it from the outside and say, how could some sort of consultant in this environment actually come up with a recommended um, rebate amount for an opioid death? How dare they do something like this? I never would have fallen into the same thing. Now, the challenge is um, the kind of students that were former students that were at this consulting firm that was working with Purdue Pharma are the kind of students that we would produce out of the Olin Business School or out of Wash U more broadly. And so they do fall into these situations and they might fall into it because they feel a certain kind of pressure from their partner that's on the firm, or they get really excited about kind of making a math formula to compute the actual cost of, a, some sort of opioid death, for example. 
And I think if we just read a 10 page story about the Purdue Pharma case, it's very different from weaving you into the kinds of relationships that Abram just mentioned. And so we wanna kind of pull out that kind of complexity, not using business cases, but rather, as you mentioned earlier, great books and film and television and podcasts and these other tools that bring us into narrative in a way that I think kind of enlivens the broader story. Ah, this is just so fascinating. Are there, are there go-to works of literature, for example, that, that um, help kind of underline the, these connections that you go to that, or is that kind of um, an ever evolving list? Well, so we, we read one uh, novel that's often called the, the sort of first great novel, first great American novel about a modern businessman. It's from the late 1800s. It's called The Rise of Silas Lapham. It's a novel I, I really love. And what's interesting is it's sort of as though Howells, uh, who wrote the novel, could see case studies coming and basically produces a 30-page case study at the end of this 330-page novel. But by the time we get to that case study, we have had 300 pages to get to know everybody involved. Mm -hmm. And so the question for the ethical dilemma that I'm not going to give here because we'll we'll look at it in class, but <laughs> the question for the ethical dilemma is how does it change when you actually know the characters involved and their family stories and backgrounds and and the ways that they love each other the ways they want to care for and protect each other does that actually change the ethical equation of the situation the business deal at, mm -hmm. at the back end of the book um, and what's interesting is that we poll students about this book when we read it and uh and often get about 50 50. Students really fall on both sides of this question of what this character ought to do at the end of this book. Uh, and then I, that produces a really lively conversation about why you think it's ethically right or wrong to do what this character is about to do. I think that's just so fascinating. In my own, I can't help but, but think in my own lens, my own lens of drama. I'm thinking of plays like um, Major Barbara, which is about an, a weapons manufacturer and the fact that he cares not about who he sells weapons to as long as he sells more weapons, right? It's sort mm -hmm. of, a, and that was written in 1905. He talks of an aerial battleship and that Wright brothers had barely flown a plane at this point. And he, we hmm. knew, this playwright knew that we as people would adapt flight for war, sadly. Um, and there's another one, Death of a Salesman, classic, you know, Arthur mm -hmm. Miller piece about, you know, the the sort of the world leaving a, a salesman behind. Um, I, I, you know, it's so fascinating to think about this sort of business and literature tie across across these areas. Peter, mm -hmm. anything to add to that? Yeah, Rob, you might be co-teaching this course. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm like writing now down now notes for, for another guest right lecture. Now. <laughs> and guest lecturing from March until May, Rob Morgan. <laughs> Um, yeah, let, let me just give you a couple examples here. So Abram named one of the big ones that we use, but actually what I like about this course is it forces me to read things that I haven't read before. It oftentimes over the course of the summer um, gets us to think about new additions. So um, Abram and I have been going back and forth on two uh, new potential additions, one which I thought he was going to love <laughs> called Trust by Herman Ibarra, which I think is probably going to be on the shortlist for the Nobel Prize, but Abram hates it. Um <laughs> But it's, a, it's about essentially a banker in the 1930s. We've talked about um, Gentlemen in Moscow, one of Abram's favorite books um, that we might use this year. And so I, I do think that when we kind of pull this together, one theme that starts to emerge across the course is this concept of what it means to rise, what it means to succeed, what are the narratives around success that we feel externally put on us or feel internally. Uh, and as a result, what I actually love about this course is 
you're talking to students that are 17, 18, 19 years old that um, are ambitious. They are wanting to make an impact in the world. They feel this pressure to rise. And yet there's an ability to essentially discuss, to deconstruct what those notions mean, to see the unintended consequences of it. Um, so for example, we read this um, great book about how to get filthy rich in rising Asia that we've used the last couple of years. Um, that is fantastic. And it talks about someone rising out of uh, what seems to be Pakistan and uh, narratives around that actual rising itself, narratives on kind of the fall, or at least the fall as we think about it, as the tail end of his life when he's out of the spotlight in different ways. And so to take those stories, then to put it in front of people and to say, what are the stories that you feel about what it means to rise? How, how could this particular narrative get you into trouble in terms of what you would pursue or a, maybe a narrowed vision of what you think su success actually looks like? So um, I think the course is, is great in the sense from a teaching standpoint is that over the course of the summer, Abram and I are texting back and forth and saying, you've got to read this, you've got to read this. <laughs> Um, and that drives us to construct a syllabus that I think creates these moments for students to uh, examine the market as well as to examine themselves in light of the market. I, I love that. I, that you, you know, you bring to mind uh, what we often see in the course evaluations for the creativity class that I teach. What's funny to Bruce, my co-teacher and I, is that in the in a lot of the course evals more or less say the question or ask the question, what would you change about the class? And and uh, students say nothing, but the truth of it is we always change the class. The class mm -hmm. is consistently adapting and evolving. COVID threw us a curveball, and we combined two sections that now have remained play mm -hmm. and failure have remained two sections. Mm -hmm. So I think that's so important. Mm -hmm. You also bring to light something for our four listeners, I think, that they should hear. <laughs> uh, and that is the dynamic uh, in a couple of ways. The that These classes are so special because we can hear in your relationship with each other this wonderful dynamic. These are team talk classes by two faculty you might disagree on a topic and that's perfectly perfectly fine that's the, that's life that's the world but also this wonderful opportunity for students to kind of have a window into two different divisions at the same time and and re mm -hmm. and really realize that the solutions to, to today's problems don't reside in the territory of a single discipline they they cut across and um, yeah. It's such a such a wonderful kind of uh, again. I wish I could take this class myself. But I'll um, give you an example of that. There's a, a story we read called "A Small Good Thing," which is one of my favorite stories of all time by Raymond Carver. Uh, I just love that story, and the end of that story ends with a kind of secular communion scene where they're sitting down and breaking bread together, and uh, it's this sort of reconciliation. And when I teach that story, I go to the dynamics of these characters, their stories, and how it all leads to the scene, and whether the scene works or not, and what makes this scene powerful, and how to think about that scene. Well, the whole story involves a hospital case, um, a kid in a hospital. So uh, it, it happened that the first time we taught this this story, I was thinking I would take the lead on it, but because of the schedule, it, it worked out that Peter took the lead on it. Um, I said, all right, well, over to you. And we start reading the story and he, he opens class and he unfolds a giant chart of patient experiences in hospitals uh, that moves you through the different patient experiences. And then he unfolds a giant budget, budget spreadsheet of the what what it costs to run a hospital, and the question for the class was how could this patient experience have been better, and how much would it have cost to make that patient experience better, and where would the cost actually come from, mm -hmm. which is 
not at all the way I've ever taught a short story before, um, but was totally fascinating and really fun to learn and think about this in a really different way in terms of like organizational strategy and patient experience and how to make this experience better. Um, and so uh, that's just one way in which we, we co-teach and learn from each other all the time. Mm, I love it. Anything to add to that, Peter? <laughs> well, I, I think what... What I at least attempt to do from the business standpoint in some of these cases is to really bring to light the trade-offs on certain choices. And so, for example, it's easy to have a really bad experience at a hospital and to say, I just need to have more time with the doctor or more time with the nurses. And then to be able to say, okay, well, let's, let's take a look at a typical hospital system and let's realize that BJH or BJC in town uh, likely has somewhere between a one and a 2% margin. And then we can bring up, for example, uh, situations that are happening in today's world. So COVID accelerated the growth of travel nursing. And so in the context of travel nursing, travel nurses get paid oftentimes more than the local counterparts. Uh, and so then we say, well, a 1% margin in a hospital all of a sudden becomes break-even or loss because you have these travel nurses. And then you can zero in on particular stories. What about that local nurse who stayed loyal to their organization and they look across the way at another nurse who's coming into St. Louis for three months and is getting paid 50% more. And so I bring this all up to be able to say that there's these dimensions that are oftentimes more complicated, but to the extent that we can actually see the complication, then we can push forward to say, is there a way to design using kind of the design thinking language, design new types of approaches towards the systems that we're in or the individual lives that we're exploring that map a pathway forward. Hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I, uh, too often get to sit in on, or too rarely get to sit on other colleagues' classes. Uh -huh. uh, too often it's just my own. So the ability to kind of have basically a half of a class that I get to sit in on and listen to the chair of the English department talk about things that I never would have thought of is fantastic. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm, I often tell my own students in my creativity class, I'm in the audience half the time. I get to, mm. to experience mm -hmm. what uh, the brilliance that is Bruce Lindsay. Um, and so we, the, we both get to sit in on your second half of our course too, which is going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be great. When that. you teach salesmen and wait, what? <laughs> what did I just sign up for? April, <laughs> early April. Looking forward to it. Just don't forget the plays. Don't forget the plays. Mm. Um, uh, so, uh, so this is a fantastic course. Remember, uh, listeners, and uh, hopefully, if you're a first year student, you can any first year student can take these classes. Uh, I believe your registration opens up mid November, so make sure you circle Morality and Markets on your on your planner. Um, it's uh, Beyond Boundaries is listed in the course listings as its own department. So you can see all the Beyond Boundaries classes at, in one glance. Uh, and this is one of, I believe, five offerings uh, next semester. So make sure you, you take that class. I'd like to kind of finish up by just asking you both what you like to do for fun. Like, what do you do in your free time? Although you both have kids, so you probably hmm. have none of that. <laughs> this concept of free time is so fascinating to me. <laughs> I remember it. I remember it. Two I know. So remember it fondly. It was like such a nice thing to have. I read magazines. It was amazing. Um, What's a no, magazine? So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So life is a little busy. I've got three kids uh, who are 12, nine and three, and uh, they keep me pretty active. And um, wow. Uh, so That's one more child than you have arms. I that is true. That is true. We're outnumbered. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah. So for right now, it's mostly uh, uh, work and kids, but the kids part is very fun because it involves things like today, I'm going to take my daughter rock climbing. Oh, fantastic. Uh, and, uh, and so I don't mind those things at all, no. uh, but it is, it is definitely scheduled out. Mm-hmm. 
kid kid rock climbing is kind of unfair because they weigh like 17 pounds and they can essentially <laughs> crawl up the walls yeah similar so i'm one of those people who has one kid uh and then complains like he has seven kids so <laughs> i'm getting ready to have number two just as the course starts i'm looking forward to really complaining once i hit january for sure um, but no, I, I think a, a big piece of what we like to explore is the region. So I love your, your point about getting out there in St. Louis. We were down in Tower Grove this last weekend for the 150th anniversary of the park. Uh, we spent a good bit of time out at a couple different restaurants, went to Ledoux Taco um, for the first time, which is great. So kind of ways to explore with people that we love and care about um, things around town is a big piece of it. And then we're both really active. So the ability to go out and go for a run in Forest Park or to go hiking on the trails is a big part of what we do nice. when we're not uh, crying in exhaustion um, <laughs> as the day ends. Well, congratulations on your upcoming child. That's fantastic. Yeah. Another student know. in case we're low on enrollment. We've got another opportunity. <laughs> Two more. There you go. Just add the youngest student possible. Mm -hmm. um, Ledoux Taco. I didn't know about Ledoux. I got to check that out. I'm. Um, a, a this is not an advertisement for Ledoux Taco. Oh, I just want to name it's anything fine. that I name here, but I, I still prefer Taco Buddha a little bit more. Oh, Ledoux, Buddha I would. So good. I would That's add Ledoux on your list. That's fair. When I was dating my wife, I, I quoted a Joe Ely song saying, uh, "You're not just the hot sauce. You're the whole enchilada." And she was like okay like is that yes, i say well when a texan when a texan compares you to mexican food that's a high compliment yeah um, that's right but, if uh, i use that line i would not be married i, don't, I think you can pull that off I, I don't think that would have worked with kelly um i want to just end really briefly if you have time to ask you a question we ask a lot of guests and that is uh, if you could go back in time if there was a time machine you can go back in time to your first year college self what advice would you whisper in your ear to yourself at that point i know it's a kind of a tricky question, but um, what would you, what would you tell yourself um, if you could do that? <laughs> mine is, mine is a little particular and maybe just, <laughs> it just applies to me, but I spent my first year of college uh, chasing a girl that we ended up not getting together. So <laughs> there was a lot of time wasted uh, in pursuit of one girl. Uh, and I would have, I would have told myself to just relax and make some other friends. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Well, and we're not... actually bringing her on this podcast <laughs> right now. Let's welcome That's her back right. on. She is. <laughs> one of my first girlfriends gave me a fish as a gift. And I, uh, I promptly within an hour changed the water and killed it. And I, I then I was on a, on a sort of a mission to find a fish that looks just like the fish that I killed. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that relationship didn't last. No surprise oh, there. so but, sad. Yeah, yeah. Um, how about you, Peter? What would you tell your first yourself? Gosh, so many things. So many things. <laughs> um, I actually, I'm, I'm going to kind of talk your book here on this Beyond Boundaries piece, but like I've found myself over the years just getting really energized by different ways of viewing the world. So I'm reading, for example, this really fantastic book um, by Kieran Satia right now called Life is Hard, mm. who's a philosopher at MIT. And so I'm finding myself now looking back and saying, gosh, I wish I would have taken more philosophy courses. Or again, this course is a great example. I, I don't think I read fiction enough. I get into the mode of reading a lot of nonfiction books, um, but to be able to actually kind of really enjoy Dostoevsky. I remember when I was actually taking a Russian literature course um, and finding ways to just kind of scan through Dostoevsky to prepare myself for the quiz. And now I'm looking back and I'm like, gosh, I should have really spent a little bit more time with Brothers Karamazov. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think to be able to explore across the areas, to take advantage of a, a life that is in some ways feels really busy. I know that it feels really busy if you're a freshman in college, but it's really expansive and open in other ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to explore. 
That's or wonderful, wonderful advice. Honestly, we hear that a lot from a lot of uh, a lot of guests that uh, that a first year student shouldn't see the path, but see the field instead. See mm -hmm. all of these wonderful opportunities we have here at WashU and resources we have. A lot of students seem to think it's all about just filling out your course schedule, but there's so much more mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. that's to offer. For example, the Cook um, Family Center for for uh, I just messed up the name of yours. <laughs> that's all right. Center for Experiential Learning too. We can talk about that. I'll talk yeah. my book all day long, Rob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but so Become many an English resources. major, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many resources we want students, including you. Uh, I often tell students, faculty are also your advisors, if you if you wish. They will talk ad nauseum about their research and scholarship, if you wish. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so thank you so much for offering your time this morning. It's a little bit early, um, but it's great to have you all and to get this podcast out there and, and get students interested and in, uh, engaged and enrolled, we hope, in your class. Great. Um, but, uh, but thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Kenrod. Yeah. Absolutely. All right.